Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil. One of the enduring mysteries in Canadian politics is the relatively low importance voters give to municipal elections. It's actually quite stunning that mayors across this country are elected by the support of about 20% of the population. At the councillor level, it's often much less. Writers and scholars seem to have caught the same dread about municipal politics. The reality is that very few studies are published on these contests. One exception is a new book by Michael McGregor, Aaron Moore, and Laura Stevenson entitled Electing a Mega Mayor, Toronto 2014. It's published by the University of Toronto Press. To talk about this work, I've reached out to my own colleague in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University, Michael McGregor. I reached him at his office in Mississauga, Ontario. Michael, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Thanks, Patrice. I'm uh, really happy to be here. I'm really excited for this conversation. Michael, you're the witness to yesterday for this episode. Tell me what happened in Toronto on October 27th, 2014. Well, it does it does kind of feel like yesterday. It's so uh, seared in my brain. But um, just, uh, you know, I think it was a fascinating election. Uh, and what we saw was, without a doubt, one of the highest profile local elections in Canadian history. We had three really high profile candidates. Um, we had uh, also outgoing Mayor Rob Ford, who was not a candidate, uh, at least not when all was said and done. Uh, but he was in the news worldwide for his substance abuse issues. He was a highly divisive, populist figure. He was very popular in some circles, very unpopular in others. Uh, and he won somewhat of a surprising election in 2010. Now, um, you know, I mentioned he was divisive. He had a very confrontational governing style during his tenure as mayor. But um, he's more noteworthy because about a year before the 2014 election, the celebrity news website Gawker released a video of Rob smoking crack or shortly after he had smoked crack. There was crack involved somehow. Uh, and he was saying, you know, many things that would not be appropriate to repeat in this podcast. And he ended up making the news around the world. Uh, he was he was on Jimmy Kimmel. So, you know, you made it when you're on Kimmel. Uh, and they made a, a bobblehead of him uh, from his appearance on that. Um, so, you know, the, the Global Mail called the Ford saga and all his his troubles and foibles uh, the greatest Canadian story in the U.S. in this century. In other words, the Americans paid more attention to that than anything else going on in Canada. <laughs> So it was the end of the Ford era, but what makes this election so important to you and your colleagues? Before I get to there, there, there was a lot more going on, right? Like there, there, it was, like I said, it was a very high-profile election. We had um, Rob's brother Doug jump in on the nomination deadline, which itself is fascinating. Rob got sick and decided to withdraw. Uh, Doug was a city councillor. He was um, uh, an advisor of Rob. We had uh, Olivia Chow, a former city councillor herself, but also a member of federal parliament, widow of Jack Layton, the leader of the NDP, very high profile. Uh, the third major candidate was John Tory, who um, had run for mayor before. Uh, unsuccessfully, he ran for the provincial PC party. So you've got these these three really high-profile candidates come out and um, and and contest this election. It was it was just you know fascinating stuff to watch. Um, the you know truth is more fascinating than than fiction, right? And so. 
Uh, on election day, Tory won. Uh, with about 40% of the vote. He's still, still still the mayor now. He won again in 2018. Doug Ford came in second with 34, and uh, Chow came in uh, third with 23%. And, um, you know, I guess another interesting feature of this election was that turnout was, was sky high. It was just shy of 55%, and this is a big outlier. Well, Usually for municipal elections, it's about 40%. Well, okay, let's talk about turnout. Um, 55% is disastrous by any democratic means, I would say. Uh, it's much lower than most provincial elections, but not all. It's much lower than the federal election, with some exceptions. Why is turnout so low at the municipal level? And how does Toronto compare with other big cities in Canada and the USA? So it's a, it's a good question. It's one I think about quite a bit. Um, partially because every time we have a federal or provincial election, you hear people bemoaning about the declining rate of voter turnout here, and it's much lower locally, uh, and has been forever, basically, right? Um, since the creation of the megacity in Toronto, the, the excluding 2014, it's 41%. So again, 2014 is really an outlier. Uh, and in comparison, provincial and federal elections are between, usually in the 50s and 60s, PEI is, is usually way up there. Um, but but significantly higher. Now, um, in terms of uh, other municipalities in Canada, it tends to be about 40%. I was looking at the AMO, the Association of Municipalities of Ontario website, a little bit earlier. The average in 2018 was about 38%. As compared to the United States, uh, it's a little bit difficult to compare it to the United States because you've got some cities there where the turnout in the primaries is much higher, uh, but but they have the same general trend, right? The turnout in local elections is is lower, and you know people down there are starting to to study local elections more uh, as well. But why is it so low, Michael? It matters. Local politics is about my garbage. It's about parks. It's about recreation. There's some culture there. Uh, it's about the road maintenance. It's about clearing the snow off the streets in the wintertime. It's about all the things, the public library, Michael. And there's nothing I care more than the public library. I mean, why do people not care? So you and my kids both, they, they love the library, but you're, you're preaching the choir here because, um, you know, what you need to do if you want to get turnout higher at the local level is to convince other people of these things. Because, you know, we asked people in our study, uh, questions about how much they know. They know less about the local level. They're less interested. They pay less attention. They don't believe it affects them as much as other levels of government. Um, and, you know, one of the best predictors of turnout is this question that, you know, Andre Blay is kind of the master of this stuff in Canada. Um, do you think that voting is a duty or is it just a choice, right? And so we ask people this about all three levels and, and people are less likely to think it's a duty at the local level. And this is not just Toronto. This is this is pretty consistent finding across the the country. So and I mean unless we change those things. I mean it's fundamentally paradoxical that we just don't care about our local politics. Is it that people think that the provincial government will look after things, that the provincial government is the is the government that sets standards for municipality, that, you know, in many cases, it's the provincial government that supplies a lot of the budget for the municipality, so that really what matters is is the provincial government? I mean, is, is there something, is there truth to that in somewhere in people's minds? I mean, there it, it might be for a small fraction of people, but we 
We have a, a very, you know, power is very divided. We're a federal country to begin with, and then you had municipalities. I live in Peel, so we have a two-tier municipality. Um, you know, good luck figuring out who does what, right? And so, um, you know, my my guess is, you know, I won't guess. I think I think we need to figure out why people are less interested, um, and then and then that's kind of the the key to to solving that problem. I think most people think it's a problem, right? Well, well, there are a few other aspects. Well, we'll talk about that. Now, I also had a question about smaller municipalities. Are people who live in in small towns more inclined to vote since they know their neighbors? They know they they're likely to know the municipal councilor. No. So this is one of those things that I think. Um, intuition may lead us astray because I totally buy your logic, right? But um, <laughs> I was looking at a piece by Rowan Couture, some people I've done work with um, in 2017 in the CJPS, and they look at this, they look at kind of like the city level correlates of turnout, and they actually find the opposite. They find that turnout is, is higher in, in bigger cities, so it's positively correlated. Really? Fascinating. But what they do find that, that struck me from that piece um, and, you know, we know this already from federal and provincial elections is that competitiveness matters, right? But I think the effects are magnified here, right? So I live in Mississauga and Bonnie Crombie, everybody knew she was going to just dominate the mayoral election in 2018, and we had 27% turnout. Competitiveness matters a lot. If you don't think your vote matters, you're much less likely to vote. And closely related to that is something that we see at the local level that is unique in Canada is the power of incumbency. We'll come to okay. that. Okay. <laughs> okay, we'll come to that. We'll come to that. I, it's something that I care about a great deal, and, and all all things that are related to that. But uh, Bonnie Crombie, I'm, I'm surprised, which means that she, she got, I, I'm assuming she got 50% of the vote, did she? Oh, she got 85 or something like that. It was a cakewalk, right? So we had about 12% of eligible voters voted for her. Right, like unbelievable. Yeah. It's not democracy, though, Michael. Is it? No, I shouldn't say twelve. It's about twenty. Well, I mean, it, d democracy. I mean, you can define that very, very broadly, <laughs> right? I mean, she won. She won the election, and you know, she, she played won the by election. the rules. There was an election, and she won it. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, Michael, who votes? Who votes generally, and who's more likely to vote? And is it different at the municipal level as compared to the provincial level or the federal level? Can, can you give me a like, composite portrait of who votes sure so we know lots actually about who votes right like the two questions we consider in political behavior are who votes and and, and who do you vote for right um, and so there's been some work on the local level unsurprisingly and the correlates here of turnout are pretty similar to any other level kind of like older voters or older electors people with an education more money uh, white electors, uh, in terms of attitudes, it's the people who are interested, pay attention, who believe that, that the local government matters and there's a duty to vote, right? But there are a couple, so it's, that's similar, there are a couple of ways in which uh, local elections are different on this front. Um, and the first is uh, the amount of time in which you've lived in a city, so so length of tenure. So the longer you've lived there, the more, more likely you are to vote, right? And um, the, I think the explanation here is pretty simple. You have a, more of a connection to the city. You're more plugged in. You know more. Um, the other one that, the other factor which which gets a lot of attention, more much more than tenure, is this idea of home ownership. What do you mean? So we know that at all levels of government, homeowners are a little bit more likely to vote than renters. But this gap is much bigger locally than it is at the other levels. So this is a 
this is one way in that they're different. And so the idea originally comes out of the United States from a guy named Will Fischel who's, who writes about the home voter hypothesis. And the idea is that um, home voters are particularly interested in local elections because this is a level that they think has the most impact upon their property values. Um, I think another explanation that fits with this finding is that we talk a lot about um, property taxes at the local level. And so, you know, even though renters pay that indirectly, it's not going to, it's not going to um, matter, I don't think as much. So, so home ownership is the biggest, most interesting difference, I think, at the local level. And so you see, you know, I'm in a homeowners association, the politicians are really willing to come talk to us, right? Um, not saying that federal provincial politicians wouldn't be, but I, I think they know, they know the deal and they are, they are uh, uh, interested in talking to homeowners. So it's fascinating. Uh, what about men and women? Are, are men and women more likely to vote or in addition to, as you say, race and income and education and age? Do men and women vote the same at the same rate? So there's uh, inconsistent findings there. You might find a difference sometimes uh, and not others. Uh, and it depends on the election, right? So uh, I'm trying to think back to a piece I wrote a few years ago. I think uh, men are more likely to vote at council level. You get a little bit of what's called ballot roll-off, where women will vote at the top and not the bottom. Uh, but women are more likely to vote at school board elections, right? So you, so you get you get some some different different things going on there. I mean, gender always almost always matters, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Fascinating. Now, yeah. Your book. What makes your book so fascinating is that it offers a stunning level of detail on what motivates voters. In the case of 2014, was it personalities or was it the issue or, or was it something else? You have, as you said, you have three strong personalities. You had Doug Ford. Uh, succeeding his brother, his ailing brother, Rob Ford. You have John Tory, who is well-known. He'd been leader of the PC party in Ontario. He's been a fixture in politics since the early 70s. Uh, and then you had Olivia Chow, high-profile uh, candidate, been um, MP in Ottawa uh, for the NDP. They're, all three were known. Uh, was it personality that made the difference in 2014 or was it the issues? So I, I've thought about this a lot, and actually, we this is the reason we included some questions to try to tap into this, right? So, so as part of our surveys here, we asked people the standard, who you're going to vote for, uh, and we also asked them, is there anybody you absolutely would not vote for? And then the follow-up question to that was, well, are you going to vote for this person because you like their policy or you like their personality? And are you not going to vote for this person for these two reasons? Now, in both instances, so the vote for and would not vote for question, uh, a pretty significant majority of people said, I'm making my decision on the basis of policy, not uh, personality, between 70 and 80% on both sides of that. So the, the short answer to your question is, if you ask voters how they're, what they're basing their decisions on, it's, it's, uh, it's policy. Now, I think there might be some reluctance to admit you're basing it on personality. I think there's some kind of like social desirability pressure they're pushing you towards that. But let's assume that, you know, people are being truthful here and it's, it's policy. Now, um, there's a big butt there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a big butt. But um, there's a there's a subsequent analysis that I conducted that that isn't really affected by this butt, right? And it's we 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 looked at candidates. So if you said you're voting for 
Ford are you voting on the basis of policy or personality in Chow and and Tory right now um, among those uh, who said they were uh, going to support Tory they were more likely to say personality so it was still a minority but they were more likely to say personality than were Ford or Tory supporters the flip side of that among those who said they would not vote for Ford a big majority said it was personal. Two-thirds of them said, I'm not voting for him because of his personality. So on the whole, people are saying it's policy. But when you look at candidate-specific stuff, there's a, there is a difference there, right? You're putting the voter on the couch here, the psychological couch. You're actually saying that they're not telling you exactly what they're thinking. I, I think this is a pretty pretty common theme. I mean <laughs> – I mean, I fill surveys out, and there's sometimes when I catch myself maybe not being being truthful, and I, I can't blame people. It's a pretty, you know, there's lots of lots of research on this, and we just have to be aware of it and and conscious of it and acknowledge it. Now, you you introduced this concept of voting correctly. What do you mean by voting correctly? How could you be a judge of me voting correctly? What's your thinking there, and what are your findings? So, so this is, uh, as you can probably guess, a bit of a controversial topic, and I've gotten kind of <laughs> hammered a couple times when, <laughs> when I, when I try to bring it up. But it's not my idea. I'm always uh, uh, clear to to point that out. So this idea of correct voting comes from a couple of guys down in the states, Lau and Redlosk, and they they ask this to me. You know, I've written a couple of things on this. Um, I just find it a fascinating question. If you had perfect information about candidates and their policies, as well as the ability to process all of this information, who would you vote for, right? And those are big ifs, you know, talk, talk about big buts or big ifs, right? Um, we don't have perfect information, and even if we did, we couldn't process it. But if you did and you could, who would you vote for? And so we look at this in the book and we focus on policy. And what we do is we look at the policy promises of all the candidates uh, on, on five dimensions, and then we, we asked um, survey respondents, what's your position on this issue? And then how important are each issues or, uh, to you? Uh, and then we can match them up and we can do a little bit of um, not very complicated math and, and figure out who should you support. And, um, you know, I mentioned I've done this federally before and I, I looked at I can't remember the election, 2004, 2006 or something when the, when the data were available. And what I found federally is that the NDP is getting the short end of the stick, right? Like Canadians at that point were, you know, if they're voting correctly, they probably should vote for the NDP. And there are some interesting considerations here. Like the NDP is never going to win, so they can say whatever they want, right? That's, um, you know, the strategic considerations, all those things going on. But um, we know that strategic voting doesn't happen very much at the local level, so that doesn't matter. And in the analysis of this this local election, what we found is that if you look at just policy alone, Doug Ford should have won, right? A lot more people were on board with his policies than Tory or Chow. In fact, Tory should have come in third, right? People didn't like Smart Track. They liked Ford's vision of subways, right? Um, and so we go into this in more detail in the book, and you're welcome to look at it. Um, you know, people will look at this kind of this concept of correct voting in umpteen different ways, but this is the way we've done it. And then, so I, I suppose the follow-up question, which you're probably thinking of, is you know why didn't <laughs> why if Tory's supposed to come in third and Ford's supposed to come in first, why didn't that happen? Well, you know, this idea of, of personality comes into play, right? Like people didn't like Ford personally. People, you know, they just, they liked Tory 
Uh, and it's not it's not all policy. It's it's the guy. Is it emotion, Mike, or is it a rational liking? In other words, is it a, is it a, a, a visceral reaction, an emotional reaction, or is it a calculation that says that personality is just as important as a platform? I'd have to think about that. So I, I'm hesitant to use terms like, like emotion and rationality seem somewhat loaded to me, kind of like normative. Um, I, I don't think it's necessarily ir irrational to dislike someone, right? Um, you know, it's it's human nature. Nature. There's a lot of work on political psychology on uh, on emotion. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to study because how do we how do we how do we measure emotion? But one of the things that I think helps explain this outcome related to emotion is is uh, you know a concept that we study a lot, and that's that's um, partisanship or affect, which is like an emotional attachment to something, right? Like we study positive partisanship in a in a, in a partisan context all the time. Um, there's been some work recently on what we call negative partisanship, right? And this is a, a repulsion from, and it's emotional. It's not necessarily rational, a, a repulsion from a particular candidate or party. And recent research suggests that it has different effects than positive partisanship on your behavior, additional effects. Um, so it's a, it's a separate thing. And I think what's going on here or what happened here is is a lot of people had what I would consider a negative partisan uh, attachment or a negative effective uh, uh, assessment of Doug Ford. Um, when we did ask people, is there a candidate you would never vote for, that you would never absolutely consider voting for, uh, about half of respondents listed Ford, right? Like that is really hard to win an election. And so they're yes. being pushed. They're, yes. not, they're only being pulled towards Tory Bird. They're being pushed away from from Ford, absolutely. So he had a tough time overcoming this. Well, you talk about Ford Nation. Um, is this a real thing? Ford Nation is the concept that there are people in Toronto and maybe provincially in Ontario, across Ontario, who identify very strongly with the Ford identity, um, be it Rob Ford, the late Rob Ford, or Doug Ford. Is there such a thing as Ford Nation? Uh, what do we know about the people who vote for Rob Ford or, or who voted for Doug Ford? So the short answer is I think there is a thing, such a thing as Ford Nation, and I'm not alone. I mean, this was a, a term that was used a lot in the media. A lot of pollsters tried to figure out who these people were. I mean, in Toronto, we talk about Leafs Nation, Raptors Nation, so it just makes sense to start to talk about Ford, Ford Nation uh, as well. Um, and it applies because they're, they're clearly a political dynasty, right? Their father was a cabinet member. Both brothers have been politically successful. They've got a nephew who's uh, also successful. He's a, a counselor. You know, they've got this big annual barbecue. They call it Ford Fest. They have a real a real following, and I think this is as close to a, a kind of like a partisan following as you can have in a nonpartisan setting. Um, and by the way, this isn't kind of unique here. Um, there are a lot of settings where these, these familial dynasties are big, Japan, India, United States, right? Um, so I do think it's, an, it's a nation, kind of similar to a party as you can get. So then the question is, who are they, right? Um, and a lot of people tried to 
to look at this and it's fascinating um well we we looked at it as well and i think it's fascinating because the groups that you see making up ford nation are not your traditional coalition so in general we found a lot of um, people who don't have a university education so popular among college educated uh racialized voters immigrants um uh, men, younger voters, these aren't kind of categories that you traditionally see together supporting the NDP or the Conservatives, right? So it's a bit of an unusual coalition in politics, doesn't fit with the traditional left-right-right mold, but, um, you know, we're in the midst of a federal election and the, the purple team, as my kids call it, uh, the PPC, seem to have the support of a lot of these same groups, right? And I, I think... The, the way you explain that is this is a, a kind of a right-wing populist movement. And whenever I tell my students about populism, it, it's not always right-wing. It's just right now in this setting it is. Um, you, get, you have these groups that kind of feel that they've been left out, that, you know, their interests aren't being cared for by kind of the traditional, you know, downtown liberal elite as, you know, uh, uh, the Fords would probably say uh and they, they kind of flock to ford nation and uh absolutely this is a this is a group that that exists and has existed for for some time i think you and your colleagues um repeatedly come back to the notion that municipal elections are low information quote unquote low information affairs uh and the reason for that is because there are there are no political parties at the municipal level in, in Ontario. I'll simply point out that uh, in Quebec, uh, municipal politics are party-based, and it's the same case in Vancouver, where there are parties. Ontario is a low information in the sense that there's no party label. There's no opportunity for political parties to exist between elections. There's no ongoing uh, campaign. Uh, there's no opposition. There's no formal opposition during the four-year interval where an opposition can be articulated, where opposition can be cultivated. What's the consequence of this low information? Is this is this is this something that explains the low turnout, the low level of engagement? Is that we we simply don't know what people represent? Uh, yeah, I I think um, I think there's definitely uh, several implications. I guess that I would I should preface this by saying that Toronto is a bit of an outlier in this respect. So. Um, there's a, a huge media market here, lots of news coverage of City Hall compared to where I live. And, you know, the 905, I was just looking at the turnout rates in the 905. They're all below 30 in, in 2018. We don't have local media. We get we get Toronto media, right? So Toronto is a little bit different in that um, it's, you know, I still think it's low information relative to some other levels, but higher than, than others. In terms of the consequences, yeah, absolutely, right? Um, it's going to have uh, negative effects on turnout, on interest, and all these things. Now that that said, I think that um, you know this is maybe a bit of a chicken and the egg kind of situation because I'm not sure there is necessarily a demand for news on on the local level, right? You know, I get the Mississauga news in my mailbox every once in a while. Uh, it's you know it's paid for by ads, right? Nobody's out there screaming, "Hey, I want to know what Crombie's up to." Um, so, so I'm not sure if if we can attribute low turnout necessarily entirely to the the lack of kind of information out there. Uh, I think it goes 
both ways. Um, yeah, I'll point out that, I mean, uh, I, I mentioned Vancouver has parties. The turnout rate in 2018 was 40%, lower than Toronto. Uh, Halifax has no parties, in contrast. It had the same turnout uh, in 2020, 40%. In Montreal, I mean, I follow politics in Montreal a little bit more closely. The turnout is just as bad, and they have they have parties. I mean, it's it's again, it's baffling. Yeah. So, so the the reason that parties are helpful is that they're an informational shortcut for you, right? If you've been around for even a couple elections, you know more or less who the NDP, you know, what the NDP wants to do, conservatives, liberals, right? So you don't have to go out at every election and figure out, you know, look for keywords or figure out what everybody stands for, right? So that's a big a big shortcut. Now you're absolutely right. We have parties in a lot of cities in Quebec and in uh, BC. There are a couple of things about these parties, though, that that um, don't really help as much as they could with information. The first is they're not tied to provincial and federal parties, right? So we don't, we can't make inferences about these local parties based on what we know about the other levels. And the other thing is, um, they're often short term and they're often candidate centered, right? So. In Quebec City, we have Equipe Le Bum, which is the mayor's party. It's his team. We have Equipe Denis Coderre in Montreal. Um, the, the opposition parties, they come and go. In Vancouver, Kennedy Stewart is an independent, right? Uh, they do have a, the one thing about Vancouver, they have a pretty long standing party system. Um, so it's maybe not, not quite the same as these other cities I'm describing, but, but on the whole, even though we do have parties in a lot of cities, they don't. I don't think they're as helpful with information as they, they are at the the federal and provincial level. The evidence is there. It makes no real difference to turnout. Maybe it's something that collectively we need to be looking at. Uh, I'm not talking about scholars. I'm talking about society. Should we be looking at uh, party structures at the municipal level, funding parties, ensuring that there is. Um, an ongoing and sustained exchange of information in the, in, the, in the public arena that there is an organization that uh, does create opposition, that does keep the feet to the fire, uh, the councillor's feet to the fire. Um, anyway, okay, that's an ongoing, it's an ongoing issue. But uh, I want to come back to this. So this, one of the things about your book that's wonderful is that you introduce all sorts of interesting concepts. So voting correctly is one of them. You talk about policy ownership. What do you mean by that? Policy ownership is not uh, not something that, it's, it's again, not something that we came up with ourselves, but it's, it's this idea that... Um, um, some parties or some candidates are seen as having a, an advantage on particular issues. And this is particularly relevant to issues that we call valence issues. These are things that we all agree on, right? We all want the economy to grow, interest rates to stay low. We all want a good healthcare system, um, all these things, right? So the parties are generally in agreement. And, and uh, this matters because um, some parties are seen as owning particular issues that if an election is about issue x you're, you're going to tend to vote with the party that does better and so traditionally um we've seen the conservatives kind of own the economy in canada right like evidence aside um not a shot at the conservatives but it's not you know it's not necessarily based on evidence any of this stuff right uh the liberals have traditionally been viewed as stronger on health care. So what you see often is parties struggling to shift the focus of an election. The liberals love to focus on health care, right? Because they know they own that that issue. Gun control. 
would be something. Yeah, exactly, exactly, right. Um, and now I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that that fits neatly into this because I don't know if it's perfectly a valence issue. Right. But um, it's the same kind of thing, right? But that's important. You're saying you're you're saying top of mind the issues that really matter, and there are reputations that are tied to it, uh, whether they're true or not. The reputations are there. Exactly right. So another one would be, would be the environment. Probably the right. the greens right. would probably. Uh, only environment. Um, now we didn't we didn't focus on this maybe as much as I'd like to in the survey, but um, I, I expect that you would see things similar at the local level. So I, I think Ford would would be viewed as have, being the best on the city's finances, Tory on property taxes, Chow on transit. These these types of things. It just so so it depends on what the election is about. But Michael, you I mean you're you're raising an important point here, and you do talk about it in your book. What what did people want in 2014? Was there were there salient issues? Were there issues that people did care about, or was it just about getting rid of the Ford legacy? So so there would be people in both camps, right? Um, there are people that would vote for the strongest candidate, most likely to beat Ford. Absolutely. So it didn't matter what the issues were; it was just personality for those people. For some people, so there's heterogeneity, right? Like there's people of all different types. So for some people, they do care about issues, right? Um, and the, the you know one of the things we do look at is issue importance and vote choice, right? So if you care about issue X, who you're more likely to vote for, and they're kind of like questions of causation here. But yeah, I mean, if you if you care about property taxes, you're going to vote for for Tory. If you care about transit, you're going to vote for for Chow, right? Like these relationships exist, absolutely. So you talk about the election. Was was there a turning point in the election campaign? It's a long campaign. Eh? I mean, it seems as though, I mean, the campaign started in the middle of winter in 2014, and the vote didn't take place until the late in the fall. It was it was it went on forever and ever. But was there a turning point, or did people sort of come in to the campaign and said, "Oh, I'm going to vote for Ford. Or I'm going to vote for Tory or Chow." And was there a turning point at all in this long campaign? It was a ten-month-long campaign. It's it's like crazy, right? Um, and and they they since reduced it. They, we do have polling data from from kind of the beginning, and and for the lion's share of the campaign, Olivia Chow was way out in front, even after John Tory declared his his candidacy. And I've I never name drop. I don't know anybody famous. I don't know any politicians, but I do know Olivia. I talked to her one time about this. Uh, she was she was a, a distinguished fellow at Ryerson, right? Um, and we kind of I floated this idea to her, and she she bought it. So you know she has. Pretty obvious NDP ties, right? And in in the summer of 2014, what we saw is a liberal minority being brought down at the provincial level by the provincial NDP, right? Um, and so a lot of people associated the need for an election, which for some reason we don't, you know, we often complain about having elections in Canada. I love it. Me too. <laughs> but a, a lot of people hate it, and they and they kind of they blamed the NDP, right? And Olivia said she'd be having conversations with people, and people would say, "Oh, we don't need this election now." And she, like poor poor her, she's she's running for municipal government after being a federal NDP member, being blamed for the actions of the provincial NDP, and it turns out that. Um, even though provincially the NDP did a little bit better, they went up by about a point in that election. They lost several seats in Toronto and they dropped significantly in Toronto. So you can kind of see kind of right after the election, her support plummet and Tory go, uh, go way up. If you look at the combined vote Tory and Ford, I mean, you'd have to conclude that Toronto voters are pretty conservative, would you not? If that's the truth... 
Why are they so liberal at the provincial and federal level? I guess I would have to challenge you there. I'm, I'm not convinced they are necessarily um, conservative, even if they occasionally vote for conservative politicians. We can we can look at kind of measures of partisanship where we just ask people, you know, at the provincial level or federal level, which party do you associate with? They're pretty liberal. About 40% say liberal, um, about a quarter say conservative, and, and about... Um, you know, 10, 15% say NDP. So it's a pretty liberal place, at least in our in our sample. Um, so then, you know, your you question of why are they voting for these conservatives? Um, I guess with respect to Tory, he had this obvious tie to the provincial PC party, um, but relative to Ford, he was not a conservative candidate, right? He was the centrist. He was, you know, if you think of the liberals as kind of the centrist party, he was the centrist. We, we asked people on a scale of zero to 10, left to right, where would you place the candidates? They put Ford way out on the right, 7.4. Tory was 6.5 and Chow was on the left at, at three. So he was the most centrist candidate. So even if, you know, in name, he was uh, a conservative, relatively speaking, he, he was not. So John Tory is sort of the proxy liberal in a case like that. I think so. And I think a lot of old PCers kind of after he lost provincially, they saw that as a rejection of kind of coming to the center because even then he was viewed as kind of a centrist candidate. And then and then the party went out to the right provincially again after that. And remind me, Doug Ford comes into the election. I mean, the, the, most of the election is I mean, Rob Ford is is running as a candidate and he drops out what in the last month, month and a half. On the candidate nomination deadline, they swapped their papers, so Rob ran for council instead, and Doug, who was running for council, ran for, for mayor. It was a last-minute thing, but it was almost a seamless switch. We have a chapter on this in the book that you know, you'd get very little change in, in vote support depending on which, which candidate it is, and I think we, we estimate that Rob would have done a point or two better, but it wouldn't have affected the, the outcome of the election. So do you see the 2014 election as a rejection of, of Rob Ford and Doug Ford, or is it really a genuine support for John Tory? Uh, yeah. It's not a fair question. I mean, I think it's a combination of both, right? Yeah. And, and again, I mean, everybody has a different different reason for voting, but very clearly, John Tory was the most liked candidate. I, you know what? I'd say it's more of more of a, a more support for John Tory, right? We have these feeling thermometer scores where you rate them on zero to hundred. Yes. Tory's the most popular consistently. Um, Ford is the least popular uh, consistently. He still comes in second, um, but on the average, he's the least popular. And and as I mentioned, there was actually very little strategic voting in this election. We have a paper where we estimate it was about one one and a half percent. So there's not much rejection going on. And the irony, as you say in your book, the irony is that voters like the policies of Rob slash Doug Ford, but they vote for John Tory. Um, Michael, I have to ask you about the, I got to ask you the classic Champlain Society question. What were your sources? You talk about this mysterious survey of yours. Can you tell us about it? Sure. So um, one of the reasons that we are now able to study local elections is that the cost of running these surveys has declined a lot because we can now do them on the internet. 
it used to be that we had to do everything on the phone and that was just a fortune. So we ran some internet surveys of 3,000 people in, in the campaign. So about the five, six weeks before the, the election. And then we did another survey after we got about 65% return to sample rate there. So pretty, pretty good sample size. Uh, in the book, we also talk about a midterm survey we conducted in 2016 of another 1,500 people. But these uh, for interested listeners, these are these internet surveys are are all over the place now, and you can get really great, detailed data for uh, a, a low price now. You trust the demographics behind it? Listen, man, uh, <laughs> I trust. I trust it. I trust it as much as I I trust the demographics in in any any survey, right? Yeah. Like you're you're not getting a normal segment of the population when you call people on the phone to answer a, a 30 minute survey, right? You're not getting a normal segment of the population when you do a focus study. You're you're never. I mean, this is something that pollsters need to be upfront on, yes. more upfront on. Right, They're, they've kind of had a come to Jesus moment with respect to the confidence intervals lately, but there's more. There's more <laughs> to do, right? Um, so you know, the the survey is the the data are what they are. There are things you can do to weight them and make them more representative of the population. Absolutely, kind of after the fact, and uh, you know, this is this is standards standard stuff. Well, you've generated a great study. Now, let's talk about you for a second. Uh, you've got more studies coming out on local elections. So what are we expecting for the uh, the future? Yeah, so um, I was happy to talk about me. So uh, the, the, <laughs> the big project I've been working on for kind of the last three or four years is the Canadian Municipal Election Study, which is, you know, we redid Toronto times eight. We did eight big cities uh, with a lot of really phenomenal colleagues from around the country. We, we've so far got two books out of it, a couple dozen, not a couple dozen, about a dozen articles. Um, I've got one more book on the, on the go. Uh, right now I'm working on two projects that I'm really excited about. The first is a single uh, city study in Calgary with Jack Lucas and Angus Bridgman. We're doing three-wave surveys, studying a local election there where they don't have an incumbent, so it's exciting. Nenshi has resigned. Uh, we're looking at uh, campaigns and information and kind of the market for information. Uh, and the final thing is a, a project with Cam Anderson at Western and, uh, again, Jack Lucas at Calgary called the, the Multi-Level Democracy Project, where we're looking at a couple of things. The first is uh, nobody's really studied these small municipalities. We want to study them in Ontario. And the second is we want to study the provincial municipal relationship and the you know attitudes about that. Obviously, there's been some history, re recent history of kind of the, the province uh, under Doug Ford uh, surprising municipalities with some less than welcome changes at their level. So really interested in that. Well, you're doing wonderful pioneer work, you and your colleagues, Michael, and thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. Michael McGregor and his book, written with Aaron Moore and Laura Stevenson, is Electing a Mega Mayor Toronto 2014. It's published by the University of Toronto Press. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners that this podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, whose annual membership makes everything we do possible. Thank you. Thanks also to our growing list of sponsors, including the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. 
There's a way for you, the listener, to support this podcast. Please go to champlainsociety.ca to make a quick donation. The Champlain Society is a registered charity and will provide you with a tax receipt for any donation over $20. Any support goes a long way as the Champlain Society receives no government support for its operations, which always surprises people. And don't forget to support this podcast by telling all your friends in whatever way you prefer. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, the fourth wave, on September 14th, 2021 by Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.